Behind the lens, we are kicking off year eight. Pam's in in the booth. She's applauding, but you can't hear her because she never turns her mic on. So you can't hear anything she says or does, which sometimes is a good thing. Uh, But year eight, thank you all so much. All our regular listeners over the years, all our podcast listeners who listen to the show after it airs live on Mondays here on AdrenalineRadio.com. And in case you don't know, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the cinematographers, the actors, the... who else are we missing? Oh, costume designers, production designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, uh, and authors. We talk to them all. And over the past eight years, we've had some incredible guests. And we've got some great guests coming up in year eight already. Okay, just so you all know, we've got the show booked. We're, we're booking into March now, folks. Um, so I'm very excited. And I can't thank all of my publicists uh, and all of the talent so very, very much who make themselves available to us for live interviews on the air or even off-air interviews uh, that we then will play the, the uh, pre-record exclusive of here on the show. Um, but it is a joy to keep shining a light, especially on, as all of you know, my heart belongs to the indies. I love the tent poles. I love those MCU films. I love those Disney films. Of course, with Bob Iger now gone completely from Disney, I don't know how I feel about Disney as a whole. However, um, it's indies are my passion and encouraging and, you know, helping and consulting with independent filmmakers and then showcasing them here on the show or on with reviews and interviews on BehindTheLensOnline.net. It is my greatest privilege to do that. And one of the reasons... I'm one of the judges for the Santa Fe Film Festival, which kicks off in Santa Fe, New Mexico, live and in person as of right now. Uh, kicks off on February 3rd in Santa Fe. Um, great, great films. I am so excited about the lineup of films for the Santa Fe Film Festival. Uh, I am... As many of you know, uh, from the time of its inception until it ceased to be any longer, L.A. Film Festival, Los Angeles Film Festival through Film Independent was my ultimate passion. Uh, I covered every single festival. I championed those films, those little indies that, that were breaking out uh, and having world premieres. And I haven't found another festival to take to channel that love uh, for uh, until Santa Fe. And I'm so excited to be a judge, a juror and now a judge, 
for Santa Fe Film Festival. And I can't wait until you all have a chance to see the films that are screening there starting in February. And the, the festival will be in person and online. So you'll be able to check out films online as well. So I encourage you, go to Santa Fe Film Festival, I think, dot, dot .org. Um, go check it out. See the films that are coming. Uh, some of the film filmmakers there you've already heard on the show here. Uh, in the past, some of the guest speakers who are going to be at Santa Fe, you've already heard here on Behind the Lens. So uh, it's a win-win. Something that's not a win-win is, oh my God, people. Can we believe how 2021 ended? We lose Betty White. Who, out, who among you didn't think that Betty White was immortal? That she was truly one of the gods and would never die that was a tragic, tragic and surprising loss considering um, everything that was being done gearing up to her 100th birthday next week. Um, very, very sad news. But then right on the heels of that, we start 2022 and we lose one of the greatest champions of the history of Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood, the golden age of filmmaking, and with quite a few films to his own credit, Peter Bogdanovich. Um, Peter was a constant presence at TCM Film Festival every year. Uh, and it was always a joy to see him, to speak with him, or to hear him in in-depth Q&As, talking with, with Robert Osborne or with Ben Mankiewicz. Um, his love, appreciation, and respect for cinema and classic film and film history ran deep. Um, I loved speaking to him, but one of my greatest memories of Peter Bogdanovich was he was talking about taking the reins and working with the team for completion. 40 years later of Orson Welles' unfinished film, The Other Side of the Wind. Um, Welles was one of Peter's mentors, and it showed in his passion, not only for the technical side of the craft, but in the art artistic and emotional aesthetic, uh, as aesthetics of cinematic storytelling. Um, I didn't know what he was actually in the film, The Other Side of the Wind. Um, so, And because he was a confidant and working so closely with Orson Welles, I was curious to see what would happen with this final version the completed version of the film. I was not disappointed. If you ever get the chance to find it and see it, I encourage you to do so. But Peter Bogdanovich gave out directed films himself, such as The Last Picture Show, Paper Moon, Daisy Miller, At Long Last Love, Nickelodeon, and Mask. And any filmmaker that gives us Sam Elliott on screen, I'm happy with. So we get we lose Peter, and then, of course... The other day, we lose Sidney Poitier, first black performer to win the Academy Award for Best Actor for his performance in Lilies of the Field. You know him from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in the Heat of the Night and his famous line, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, The Defiant Ones, and I think my favorite Sidney Poitier film, A Patch of Blue. Um, he was a gentle giant. He also, I had the opportunity to see him and hear him speak at TCM Film Festival. I did not get to interview him, unfortunately. 
but I did run into him on other occasions at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills uh, and a few other film events over the decades. A true giant, a groundbreaker, um, and just humble, gentle, and class personified. We also lost Marilyn Bergman this past week. Composer, lyricist, songwriter, author. Ironically, she is one of the composers, songwriters for In the Heat of the Night. Uh, she also, her work, you'd know it uh, from TV series like Alice, Good Times, Maud, some of her famous songs uh, where she wrote the lyrics to, The Windmills of Your Mind, which debuted in 1968 in The Thomas Crown Affair with Steve McQueen. Uh, the Way We Were, yes. She wrote the lyrics to Marvin Hamlish's music um, for, okay, one of the greatest tearjerkers of all time. Uh, you Don't Bring Me Flowers. Neil Diamond wrote the music. Marilyn Bergman wrote the lyrics. Um, and then Barbara Streisand later recorded it as well in a duet with Neil Diamond. Um, what Are You Doing the Rest of Your Life? An incredibly famous song, very poignant song, music by Michelle Legrand, lyrics by Marilyn Bergman. And then just yesterday, you know, we had Dwayne Hickman, you know, our beloved Dobie Gillis. Uh, you also know him from those the beach party movies of the 60s with Frankie and Annette, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, Sergeant Deadhead, the, um, Cat, then on to Cat Baloo, Ski Party, Dr. Goldfoot, and The Bikini Machine, uh, as well as TV series like The Bob Cummings Show. But he started his career, Dwayne started his career back in the 1940s with the Rusty movies for Columbia. The Return of Rusty, Son of Rusty, My Dog Rusty, Rusty Leads the Way, Rusty Saves a Life, Rusty's Birthday. Always a joy. And I, 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 you could see him even into the 80s uh, in television appearances. Even though he pretty much walked away from acting, he transitioned to behind the camera and then into painting. He also suffered from Parkinson's disease, uh, complications of which... Uh, or what is his death is attributed to. But it's big screen, small screen, lots of TV one-offs. I think the first post-Beach Party films that I remember seeing Dwayne Hickman in uh, was Love American Style, when it was first airing on ABC. Uh, long, 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 long time ago. Um, but... His big, you know, the but most people will know him for the many lo the many loves of Dobie Gillis, and he played Dobie Gillis to Bob Denver, played opposite Bob Denver, everybody's favorite, the one and only Gilligan. Um, just, just one travesty after another, and then yesterday we get the final, the final jab to the heart, Bob Saget. Who would have thought, 65 years old, we lose Bob Saget. Um, beloved Danny Tanner from Full House and Fuller House. Um, a a stand-up comedian whose comedy could get raunchy and ribald, which was the total opposite of who he played as Danny Tanner. 
But above all, Bob Saget, the nicest guy in the business. And a lot of people, if you weren't watching Full House or in recent years, Fuller House, you were watching America's Funniest Videos, which he hosted for years and years. Um, he really helped, much as Betty White did, um, with such a presence, an iconic presence in television. That is exactly who Bob Saget became as well. Uh, and his TV fare was wholesome family entertainment. Uh, his com his stand-up comedy, that's for the adults. And uh, sadly, he had, had just finished performing in Jacksonville uh, in Florida and was looking forward to more performances later this month. He, he got back out on the comedy circuit. Um it is just, it is still, the shockwaves are rippling through Hollywood. You know, we could kind of expect Betty White, 99, Peter Bogdanovich in his 80s, Sidney Poitier in his 90s, Marilyn Bergman in her 90s, um, Dwayne Hickman in his 80s and infirm. But Bob Saget, wow. Can we just, 20, 2022, can you just go back in the closet, do something? Can we have a new New Year's? Um, but luckily, all of these people have left us such a great body of work that we will be able to cherish them, the memories of them, and their talents for decades to come. So I don't normally do in memoriams on the show, but this this week required it. It really, really did. Uh, you know, last night, Hollywood Golden Globes. Um, what can we say? They're still under a specter of darkness. Um, no celebrities present. NBC had dumped them, not televised. Um, there were some key winners, though. Power of the Dog, Best Drama. Nicole Kidman, Best Actress in a Drama. Will Smith, Best Actor in a Drama. Uh, best Motion Picture Musical Comedy, West Side Story. Rachel Zegler picked up Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy for West Side Story. Andrew Garfield, Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy for Tick, Tick, Boom. Best Motion Picture in Canto. That doesn't surprise me because it is the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Um, and Best Motion Picture, not Foreign Language, Non-English Language Film, Drive My Car Out of Japan. Uh, best performance by an actress in a supporting role, Ariana DeBose, West Side Story. Best performance by an actor in a supporting role, Cody Smith-McPhee, Power of the Dog. Best director, this was, a, this was a surprise, Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. Best screenplay, Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. And we all know that is, I love that film. Best original score went to Hans Zimmer for Dune. And best original song, no surprise here, went to Billie Eilish for No Time to Die. Um, if we have time later, I'll talk about some of the TV awards as well. I do have to say, yay, Jean Smart, uh, who picked up a Best Actress uh, Golden Globe for her performance in Hacks. But now, let's get to today's show at hand. I am thrilled, thrilled. Joining us at the midpoint of the show is writer and director Paul Boyd. 
he is known best for all of his music videos with for with Celine Dion, Carolyn Jones, Sh- Shania Twain, Sting, Backstreet Boys, The Roots, In Excess, Seal. And we've got him here talking about his new film that comes out tomorrow on VOD and digitally, I Challenger. Um, I love this film. It is a comedy. We need some comedy. We need some laughter. We need some friendship. We need some lightheartedness. And Paul gives that to us with iChallenger. He's going to join us live shortly. But first, okay, next to Jude Hill, 2021 gave us another incredible young actor who has also stolen a piece of my heart, the fabulous Daniel Ranieri in the George Clooney-directed The Tender Bar. Um, Daniel never acted before makes his debut performance working with George Clooney at, and then co-starring with Ben Affleck, Christopher Lloyd, Lily Rabe. Um, he is a, a light, a shining light uh, in cinema right now. And he is the nicest, most fun, effervescent, energetic young man. Uh, and he's, he, he's got his priorities straight. Uh, as you're going to hear in my exclusive interview with him here in a second, you know, his favorite part of, of working with George Clooney and Ben Affleck wasn't George Clooney and Ben Affleck. It was playing with George Clooney's dog and producer Grant Heslov's dog. He has his priorities straight, people. Um, he is, he easily handles the drama, but his chemistry on screen opposite Ben Affleck Ben Affleck plays Uncle Charlie to Daniel's young J.R. This is based on J.R. Mooring's the uh, memoir, The Tender Bar. And it is a heartfelt story. It is a beautiful story. Clooney brings this 1970s patina to life with Martin Rue as a cinematographer and George and Martin. Uh, they are something special to begin with as a collaborative team. But the standout in this film, not only is it Ben Affleck's, I think, the finest performance of his career, but it gives us Daniel, who steals the film and your heart. So, without any further ado, take a listen and just enjoy the joy of Daniel Ranieri talking the tender bar. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am so happy that I get to talk to you about this film. Thank you. You stole the film. Thank you, you so much. You are just amazing. That was the first thing when I watched the film a few weeks ago and I wrote the publicist, the first thing I said is that you are so charming and you stole the film. Thank you, Debbie. Oh, my gosh, Daniel. What a way to kick off your career. Not, you know, you're directed by George Clooney. You're starring yeah. opposite Ben. Um, you've got Lily, Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown himself plays your grandpa. Uh, you are one lucky young man. Yes, I am very lucky. I just amazing. So what was this experience like your first time making a movie? 
Were you? The experience was great, and Ben and George were so nice to me. The first day filming, I felt comfortable with them, and I trusted Ben and George. And Ty was just amazing, and I felt like they were part of my real family. I felt like Ty was my older brother, and I felt like Ben was my real uncle, and I felt like George was like my dad. Wow. Well, you know, I have to ask you, because everybody knows about George and all the practical jokes he plays. Did he, yes. did he play practical jokes on you? Not really, but he was very funny, and he <laughs> told us stories, and the stories are great. And one day on set, we were actually play fighting, and, like, we were play fighting, but, like, uh, I fake punched him, and he, like, his, like, he moved his head, and then he fake punched me, and I moved my head, like, I just got hit. And that was a fun time. So George is teaching you how to be a stuntman, too. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because this is your first film, how did you, your first day on set, you got all the cameras there, you got the microphones there, you have Martin, your cinematographer there, the cast... How do you even start acting when you walk into something like that for the very first time? Oh, it was hard because the first, the first, the first uh, scene that I filmed, I was very nervous because I never did it before, and there was all cameras around me. And the first scene when we filmed it, afterwards. I was not nervous at all, and I feel very comfortable with George and Ben. And George gave me some good advice when filming. When there's a lot of cameras, don't look directly into any camera because then you get nervous. So I really said, oh, that sounds like some good advice. And I took it throughout the filming experience, and I actually very much worked. Well, I have to tell you, I talked to Martin, your cinematographer. And I've known Martin for a number of years, and Martin said that you were incredible. He did? Uh, he did. And, you know, Martin, with that camera, he's really picky. So he can yeah. see he can see when something isn't right or doesn't look like, and he raved about you, Daniel. Raved oh. about you. Oh, I said thank you. He was great. I loved him. Ah, well, you know, you're... if. If you want this to be your career, you couldn't have started with better people. That yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. So I've got, I've got to ask you, you have some interesting things happening in this movie. You know, a big question, and because you have Ty playing Jr. grown up, and you're playing Jr. as a kid, did you and Ty talk at all? Because sometimes when an actor is playing the older version, they like to talk to the younger version to see and to watch and to see if you're doing certain things with your hands or turning your head or walking a certain way. And then they may try and keep doing that as an adult in the character. Did you and Ty ever confer and, and plot together for things like that? Yeah, well, yeah. Really, but we built a strong connection. I went his, in his trailer sometimes, and we eat lunch together. And I loved him like my big brother. But we didn't really talk about, like, 
didn't really talk about JR that much. But one time we went to the basketball court. We were playing basketball. And, but me and him had a strong connection. We did a lot of things. And here at the hotel, we, um, we were in the pool together. And we went into jacuzzi and we were hanging out. And he was just a great, I just love him like my big brother. Wow. Well, and I bet just by you guys hanging out, I bet he picked up a lot of you, the essence of Daniel, that he then that he then put infused into his adult version. So yeah, I picked up a lot of him too. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But then you also have, you know, this whole relationship between your character of J.R. and Ben's character of Uncle Charlie. I got to tell you, Daniel, every time the two of you are on screen together, my heart smiles. The two of you have such a beautiful connection on screen. And we also have a connection off screen. Well, and that, you couldn't have that on-screen connection without that really good off-screen one. Yeah to get you more tickets so that the two of you can go together. Yeah, I know. <laughs> now, did you have a lot of rehearsal? Because, you know, sometimes, and this is an independent film, and independent films don't generally get as much time as the, as the big films, like a Marvel film, you know, an Avengers film or something. Did you get time to rehearse together? Um, to Not really. Well, I mean, we did get time, but we didn't really rehearse together because we knew each other's lines. Wow. So I got to ask you, because the Dickens, that's a really cool bar. That's a really cool set that they built for you guys. So while you're sitting there, you know, while JR is sitting at the bar, were you actually doing your own on-set school homework there, or were you faking it? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, um, it was a prop. <laughs> real homework so they, they what they did was they gave me a sheet of paper and they just had to copy all the words down on the paper on the, like, they gave me a sheet of paper with words on it and then they gave me a blank sheet of paper and i had to copy the words with the, the i had to copy the words from the paper and copy on the blank piece of paper you know it probably would have been more fun for you if they'd given you your real schoolwork so you could just sit there and and work on that while everybody's working around you yeah, but I, I hate my, my I hate homework, so. I hated homework when I was in school, too. And no matter how much you hate it, they still keep giving it to you. I know. You know, how was that for you? Because you still had to do school while you were shooting. Did you set aside certain time of the day for school? Or how did that work for you? Each day that I was filming. Oh. So, yeah. And 
sometimes if I had to film another scene, I would pull, I would get pulled out in the middle of like, if I was an hour in, I would get pulled out and like uh, film another scene and go back in. But I would have to do three hours a day or else the next day I would have to do like, if I did two hours a day, the next day I would have to do four hours. Ah, no, no, oh, oh, that's terrible. Yeah, I know. I mean, school is important, but boy, that that's that's like you got two jobs. You're working on the film and you're working at school. You're doing two jobs here, Daniel. Yeah, I know. It was hard. Oh my gosh. Well, then with when you've got to work that hard, how much fun was it then when you get to do scenes like driving a car with Ben? Oh, it was very fun. And Ben was so fun to drive with. He, I put my hand on the wheel, and he was uh, pushing the gas. And it was so fun. And the bowling scene right before, we had to pick up everybody. And it was fun. We were all just cruising in the car. Our hair was blowing. And then we got to the bowling alley, and the bowling alley was great, and we had a great time. Okay, so what what made the bowling alley so fun? Because I bet you never saw a bowling alley like that before with those straight pins. Yeah, what made it fun was we were really bowling, so that made it very fun, and we got, like, uh, they had snacks on the set, and, and it was so fun filming with Ben and everybody. And I actually got a strike on one of them. And that was fun. But mostly there was music and we had, like, we were actually real, like, bowling. We were bowling for real. Okay, well, now I'm jealous because I can't bowl. I'm going to embarrass myself here and tell you that my high score in my entire life for bowling is a 56. Oh my gosh. That's pretty darn bad. So I've now totally embarrassed yeah. myself to you, Daniel. So, <laughs> but you know, another big part of this film and your dynamic in it and your performance is you with Matthew, Max, and Michael. Um, you know, doing all these hijinks and going to the bowling alley and going to the beach and riding in the car. Um, and hanging out at the Dickens. How fun was it with those three? Because they were all, they come across looking kind of like uncles to you as well. Yeah, they were also very fun, and I loved them too. And every time at the, at the red carpet, they had the red carpet, and we were like, yo, what's up? And we were saying hi to each other. And they were so funny too in the movie, and I, I love them. And I text them, I text them. Like, I text, I text George, Ben, Ty, and I also text them. Wow. So, how fun was it to have Christopher Lloyd as your grandpa? Oh, my gosh. It was very fun. He was so funny and nice. And he was very like, they were very fun to film with him. And it was just great. I loved him. I love the scene where he went to the Father's Sunday with uh, JR at school. That was really a wonderful, wonderful scene. And he was, he's very funny while he's talking to, you know, the other adults. And you're sitting there watching, and it was, the look on your face is great. Yeah, it was, it was fun. I mean, I 
we actually, if we wanted to, we could have ate the food. So I ate the food because I was hungry. But it was very fun because you we were talking to like uh, all the people and some off off the filming. Mm-hmm. Like we, when we were on set, but they weren't filming. Some of the parents were asking like, "How is how is Doc? How is being Doc in the future?" And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, yeah, it was very fun." Well, now, had you seen uh, Christopher Lloyd? Had you seen the Back to the Future movies? Uh, no, but my mom did, so she told me a lot about them. I bet your mom was pretty excited that you were that you were working with Christopher Lloyd and being directed by George Clooney. Yes, she was. Yeah. So yeah. now, working with somebody like George and Ben and Christopher, these guys have been around a long time. Did they give you any acting advice or any advice on, you know, how to keep working and what your priorities should be if you want to be an actor? Well, I already told you what George's advice was. Yep. Don't look in the camera because then you get nervous. But Ben gave me some advice that when you're talking, you have to talk like you're having a real conversation or you're talking with your friend or somebody that you're very close with or you're comfortable but if you're acting and you're just like trying to memorize the lines it won't sound good mm-hmm. it, would just, it would sound like you're trying to memorize the lines but that was good, very good advice now did Christopher give you any good advice um no not really <laughs> Well, I think you got the best advice that you could get from George and from Ben. Now, yeah. is acting what you want to do now? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any? Do you do you have a dream kind of acting role you'd like? Do you want to do like a western and ride Star- horses or? Yeah, I want to do Star Wars and Avengers and all like those action movies because I, I like to watch them and, I, and it would probably be very fun to film them. Well, and what's interesting is we don't see a lot of kids in those, in those kind of movies, so that would be a really nice addition. Yeah, it would. Yeah, you could break some real ground there, Daniel. Yes. Ah, well, we're going to have to we're going to have to let Kevin Feige know that and you know, for the Marvel films, there's a future here. A future. Daniel yes. Daniel can take the jobs. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you have any other any other acting jobs lined up yet, or are you still kind of looking? I have a couple, but other than that, I'm still kind of looking. Mm-hmm. Well, because you got to balance it with school, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. So now... Now that the movie, you've done your red carpet, you've been doing press, the movie is coming out so everybody can see it. If you had to pick one thing that was your favorite thing about making this movie, what would it be? Um, the scene, the the best scene, I think, was filming with Ty Sheridan, that scene when me and him was just great. But... On set, the favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite things was, like, um, George brought his dog, and his friend brought his dog, his name is Grant. George's friend's name is Grant, and his dog was named Walter, and they brought their dogs, and I, I'm a very big dog fan, so 
so I was petting them, and they were so cute. So that was also very fun. Yeah, Grant and George have been friends a long time. A yeah, long. Since, I think, high school. Oh, Daniel, this has been so wonderful getting to talk to you. You are a young man. I am going to follow your career and see whatever it is you're doing because I just think you're wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Thank you. And I hope I talk to you again in the future. Yes, I hope so, too. All right, you take care of yourself and have a good holiday, Daniel. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye. And that was the ever-delightful Daniel Ranieri. And you can all see The Tender Bar right now. It is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Um, it will make your heart smile. That's, uh, that's all I can tell you. And, but we're going to shift gears a little here to another happy movie. And I'm so excited to welcome the incredible Paul Boyd to the show. Hi, Paul. Hey, how you doing? Thank you, Debbie. I am so excited to talk to you. And I think that, that our mutual friend Brad is excited that, that you're on the show today, too. Oh, Brad is so cool. He's such a, he's such a great, supportive... Isn't guy. he great? Oh, isn't he? Is. he? Great, great cinematographer. He's probably listening right now because he's doing nothing since he just broke his ankle. Oh, ouchie. <laughs> That's what I said. Feel better, buddy. Feel better. <laughs> but I can't tell you. I didn't know what to expect when I started watching iChallenger. Because I know your work from your music videos over the years. Um, so I didn't, you know, some directors, they can't quite make that um, transition from music videos to a narrative storytelling. So sometimes yeah. it's a it's a hit and miss. But with the first frame started rolling, you had me hooked. I was like, no. I want to know more about this guy, Challenger, a.k.a. Sid. Um, and the fact mm -hmm. that, Jan that, that uh, Jimmy Duvall is starring in it. Jimmy's been on, he's been on the show before uh, for one of his last films, uh, Spinning Dry. So I've had Jimmy yeah. live on the show. And I just think he's so talented and so underrated. Um, oh, such a great guy. Such so, a great guy. So you start and you grab me right away. And then I'm in for the ride. And, okay, starts out, it's, it's maybe a stoner buddy comedy. Uh, and then we've got poor Sid who's trying to, you know, he's just down on his luck. He can't do anything right. And even gets on Tinder, and the first and the first woman that shows up at his door is Margaret Cho uh, as a dominatrix who leaves him tied up and shackled, essentially in <laughs> zip ties. Yeah. And he can't get to a phone. He can't do anything to because he's tied to the bed. Yeah. And with that, the laughter just kicks in. And then you take this great story and you develop the friendship between Challenger and Logan, who his video gaming nemesis uh, online uh, or opponent. And we learn more. I mean, Sid, he's he's dealing pot and he gets everything legitimately from a dispensary. 
where it's very obvious from the start that the clerk really, really, really likes him. And he probably likes her, but he's too shy or not adult yeah. enough to, to ask her out. And, of course, you know, we've got Tina Majorino, who, you know, we don't see as often as we should. Um, so true. I have loved her since she was doing, you know, roles as, as a young girl, as a child. Yeah. Uh, and she popped up on Bones a few years ago as an FBI agent. I was like, whoa! Um, now to see her here, it's another totally different but endearing, charming character she plays. But, yeah. you know, poor poor Sid, you know, you know, by this point, your heart's breaking for this guy, Paul. Your heart's breaking for him. It's like... Good. Nothing is going right in this poor boy's life. And Logan is the one that says, you need to change your luck. You know, Vinny, the the mini-mart owner, you need to change your luck. Doesn't win at the lottery, doesn't win at love. You know, he's just getting evicted (laughs) because he's spending too much time online and not enough, you know, making money. And it's like... This this poor schlub, and Jimmy is so adorable, as this with this haplessness, and then you take it yeah. into total hilarity when he gets this great idea after seeing Russian videos of you you will get luck if you are buried alive, you know a twenty four hour surveillance if you buried alive, uh, and then your luck will change. And it's like, I just knew this, this was going, this was going to be a kick in the butt. And Paul, I didn't stop laughing. Oh, that is so good to hear. Uh, You know, where do you even come up with an idea with your co-writer, Kara, Kara Scobie? Um, where do you even come up with this idea? It's one thing to have, okay, the stoner buddies. It's another to be, okay, one's a grown-up kid. One is still a teenager living at home with mom. You know, the odd couple friends, but they're only online, and then they meet in person. And then you bring in all these um, great, this great societal commentary. You've got the quote-unquote the holy rollers showing up at the front door wanting to save you. Um, and you know, we got a great twist that comes with that. And you've got all these, these kids in school uniforms showing up, knocking on the door, Sid, Sid, they're there to pit, to buy pot. And it's, yeah. you cover so much here and you never lose the heart. You never lose the humor. Where do you even start to plot this out? That's a really good question. You know, um, well, thank you so much for your response, because <clears throat> clearly you got what we were trying to do, which is, you know, a kind of ordinary guy in extraordinary circumstances, someone that from the outside you might not really like, you know, um, but who you grow to like, and because you see that actually he's a really good guy, and that other people really like him, and that's societal, right? Sometimes it takes endorsements from others to, yeah. to, to like people, so... There's a lot of societal comment with regards to identity because him and Logan are both misrepresenting themselves online, which is what a lot of people do, <laughs> you know, to get likes and to get followers. And But it's really about 
self-esteem and point of view. And, and, and it's kind of mythological because Sid has to go into the underworld in order to confront his past. And, and when he does that, we learn why he is the way he is and who he is. And because at first we just judge him on surface level. And that's kind of what the film's about, on, is, is about how we perceive one another and, and Sid and how he perceives himself. Because you, you said something correct, which is that he, the love and the luck, they're there in his life, but he's just not really tuned into the frequency. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's there. The, the girl already likes him but he just can't see it because it's about stunted growth too you know the kind of not wanting to let go of of your youth and that's because of what's happened to Sid in his past with his brother and the history but we learn that later on and by the time he's in the box we kind of we like him so therefore you kind of care more <laughs> you know you're kind of driven to be like you know to have empathy for this guy and care about him so you know that that way you're with him inside the box so that was but the box is also representative of our minds it's representative of a cell phone and you know, a zoom call we're all in boxes you know it's like how, it's this new new paradigm and i wanted to somehow capture that in the film with the live stream sequences of multiple faces of mm-hmm. people on, on the screen from all over the world actually used all our friends for that so that was a magical moment and that all happened during COVID because we couldn't go out and shoot pickups of people watching the stuff we had to do it so that in a, in a strange way helped the film you know I believe you know things happen for a reason and um, with this micro budget movie that we made a lot a lot that happened a lot synchronously it was quite beautiful well and you, you call this a micro budget movie and uh, you know but it doesn't look like a micro-budget movie. Right. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, that's from my years of, I mean, you know, years of shooting and directing mm-hmm. commercials and videos where I know, and I've made a couple of other films. I mean, I, I've definitely come to it with a visualist perspective just because of all the, all the work I've done. So I think automatically it probably wouldn't look like a first-timers just because of that experience. But, you know, I do I did 120 pages of storyboards for this film and then never brought them out on the set because I just knew instinctively how to do it. And I didn't want to shoot it like TV with A and B roll coverage. I wanted to shoot masters and really kind of give it a, a filmic sensibility and, you know, which was a risk in a low budget movie, but I think it worked in the end. It kind of, you know, I mean, I'm never satisfied. (laughs) but I think we definitely reached a kind of, we, we captured a cinematic essence, I think. Well, I think you definitely did. And something that really, um, rings very true for me is I love the scenes in the box um, mm. from Sid's perspective of being in the box and we're you know you're we're looking down the PVC pipe and you see an eye or you see his face or you see him craning or you see him moving trying to get away from raindrops and it very 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 much reminded me of Ryan Reynolds movie of Buried which oh, I yeah. think was well, brilliantly was done yeah 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 I saw that film and couldn't believe they spent 90 minutes in the box. Yeah. I was flabbergasted how they did And he's so brilliant. I mean, so to me, that was an inspiration. And actually, your initial question about how did, how did we come up with it, I for years wanted to do a contained thriller, you know, based on the fact that when I saw Buried, I said, you know, there's, there's another way to tell this story. And, and so I wrote films, someone trapped in the trunk of a car, someone, I mean, really four or five different stories. And then what happened was my co-writer, because we knew we wanted to make a, a, a stoner comedy with a kind of thrilling element, but mm-hmm. we didn't really have the plot. 
so she did research and discovered in Russia that people were doing this and came back to me and said, what about this? And it was like, that was it. It was like bingo, because then we knew we could take it and make it an Internet challenge, which kind of changed the whole dynamic of the film. So it was really about a hybrid bringing, you know, a thriller and a comedy together. And, and to be honest, Debbie, not knowing if it was going to work or be funny. So that's why it's great to hear you thought it was funny, because we're cutting it going, is this funny? Like we, we didn't we didn't know, you know what I mean? Because it's situational. There's not really any jokes in the film. But so I'm glad you picked up on the humor because it was, you know, it's my first comedy, so I didn't I didn't know whether it would be funny. Oh, I I mean the humor it and it is it's very situational, and so much of that comes also from your casting. Because you've got you've got Coy Stewart as Logan, you've got you've got Jimmy Duvall as Sid, A.K. Challenger, and so much of the film is about the two of them interacting. And one, okay, Logan might be a little more savvy than Sid mm-hmm. about certain things, but when he gets yeah. in a predicament, he's just as hapless and helpless exactly. as yeah. Sid. So yeah. that just that to me, I find that funny that that takes us back to the days of you know like a, a buster keaton or a harold lloyd or abbott and costello a laurel and yeah, hardy yeah. it's that kind of it's all situational comedy and, and physical comedy because you know I, it's funny i wrote my thesis on laurel and hardy and um so situational comedy and environmental and, and works for me rather than telling jokes and telling like, Telling jokes, especially in modern films, like yeah. joke telling in the comedies, they have the actor stand there and do 20 different, you know, it's a different vibe nowadays for that. So to me, it's much more traditional and kind of ironic, you know, comedy that's ironic. And, you know, it's really about the choices that makes it funny, you know, as more than anything else. But I'm glad that's coming across. I really am because it's a fine line with comedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I watch a lot of films that are meant to be funny and I'm going, this isn't even funny. But, yeah. So it's, it's, it's tough, you know, but... Um, but it is a hybrid, and, and that's what's going to be interesting to see if people pick up on that and, and, and get both aspects of it. And we hope that, you know, the stoner and the, and the gamer community share the movie because it was kind of written for them, too. You know, it was written to have, give people a window into marijuana and and because and the dangers of it to people that don't know. It's really not. It's, you know, it's better than alcohol. It's, you know, on a Friday night, the pubs, are, the, the police stations are full of, people that have been drinking not people that have been smoking weed they're at home eating pizza and watching playing playstation <laughs> so to me it was to try and get that philosophy of, of marijuana in there somehow and, and and show how it really is like how it exists in la you can just walk into a shop yeah and, and purchase it but yet there are still an underserved community of kids under 21 who are all smoking it and they need to get it too and, and so it was how do you address that so in, in a way, I thought that's good because we can make him a little unlikable at the beginning. And mm-hmm. then if you watch the film, if we can turn the audience and get them to like an unlikable character, when they go in the box with him, they're going to be right there with him. And so that was our, that was the. the yeah, because point. with the kids, the school kids that are coming and banging on Sid's door, and they come back, he doesn't answer the door. They're undeterred, they keep coming back. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> wanting that door answered. <laughs> but it, that this is where the costuming was so important to have the, the Catholic school uniforms on so that it yeah. shows yeah. that these are kids. They can't get into dispensaries, but That's they right. can go to the... And they're, and they're going to, yeah, and they're going to get it anyway, whether they buy it from a drug dealer on the street, whether they buy it from someone in their house. Like, they're going to get it. I mean, that's just how yeah. it is here. I have two kids. 
one's 20, one's 28. They were both had it when they were teenagers. They, I couldn't stop them. It was a, it just was a thing. It, you know, without chaining them up and locking them up. Yeah. In, in Los Angeles, it's everywhere. And you know what? I don't think it's such a bad thing. You know, I, but anyway, that's my my take on that. But you know, but you also throw in these disclaimers, like when Sid sells to the the school, the, the high school kids. He tells yeah. them, "Look, be careful. This is really strong." He does give yeah. them some caveats. Um, oh yeah. And then, which and then when the girls show up, the girls show up and they're offering favors for drugs, and he's like, "No, no." He's think I am Captain Creepy. Yeah, we like him because we go, "God, he's actually got some ethics." That yeah. <laughs> And you don't expect that. And then we see him, you know, with Logan's mom, um, which is a nice turn by MC Light um, as Diane. But, I mean, it's yes, ma'am, and he's very proper, and he's got manners. He's always very mannered. And when the holy... What about the first thing he says to her? He's like, are you his girlfriend? His girlfriend, yeah. Automatically thinks his girlfriend because of everything that the story that Logan's been telling. And that's a a subtle, funny moment there. No, I'm I'm his mother. And you build in a lot of those those subtle moments because of the whole idea that people on the internet, in the gaming world, just, you know, on Tinder, on... You name anything, and yeah. they're not putting themselves yeah. out there. They're using that veneer to create yeah, a persona, yeah. and exactly. which is which is where we're going, right, with the metaverse. Yeah, it's where we're going, and, and, and you know, so to me, it, it, yeah, to see that play out, and also the whole idea of all of these challenges, you know, these social yeah. media challenges. Okay, so yeah. Bury yourself in a box. Be monitored for 24-7, but bury yourself underground. And granted, Sid, like, the Russians are burying themselves in actual coffins. He doesn't want to be in a coffin. He just wants to build his own box. (laughs) So, you know, we've got, you know, I mean, you really put Koi and and Jimmy through the ringer with physicality here. They got to build things. They got to shovel dirt. My God, Paul, a taskmaster you are. Definitely, and we did the film in 12 days. Oh, my God. Yeah, and we dug a real hole. You know, I filmed in my brother's house because I'd, I'd written the script to be in his house without knowing it, and he passed away, which was crazy because then I went to, to the guy that lived in the house and said, you know, I've written the script, and it looks like it's set here. I said, but I need a hole in the backyard, and he goes, oh, there's a tree in the backyard. And he says, oh, but wait a minute. He says, there's a deck there, and underneath the deck, there's a koi pond. I said, you're kidding me. <laughs> he broke the deck up. The hole was pretty much dead. It, it was completely meant to be. Yeah. It was a very strange set of circumstances how that happened. Oh, my God. You know, talk to me about working with your DP, with Brooks Geyer. Um, I know Brooks has extensive camera work. Uh, you know, WandaVision, yeah. fresh off the boat, going back, Jurassic World, Italian job. You name it, he shot the genre. Uh, and, yeah, you know... He's a great guy. He he actually shot my first commercial in 1998. And wow. We came together then, and 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 what and it's strange with me because I shoot a lot of my own stuff. I'm very much camera driven. I mean, yeah. I shoot all my own videos and all my own commercials now. But when it came to do the film, I just knew I needed someone that I could trust and someone that had more experience than me operating for films because you know I'm very hands on and. Brooks is just, you know, he's so mellow and such a good vibe. And we've known each other so long. 
and all the stuff he does with Michael Bay, I know he's a precisionist. You know, yeah. he understands precision and standard of excellence, which is really important to me. I mean, I'm all about, you know, the things, the technical aspect is very important to me. So I knew with him I could relax and he would get everything right and I would be able to focus on the directing. But we shot with two cameras, so we were both shooting at the same time. Mm-hmm. What were you shooting with on this one and what lenses were you using? We shot everything um, with uh, Ari Super Speed, you know, proper lenses. We shot it on um, red we shot him on Dragon. On the Dragon? Dragon. In the camera division, Rufus Burnham at the camera division in, in Hollywood, in North Hollywood, he's someone I've known for a long time. And that's how we managed to do the film so cheaply is because everyone that we know just stepped forward and helped us. And um, it was great. And, that, and you know, all the years of hiring and working with people, it was, it's, it's yeah. you know, the reciprocity was there, you know. You know, I'm curious, how did you and Brooks develop your visual tonal bandwidth here? Because I love your palette. I love how you keep things when we're even in the box. In the box, we're not even into zoom. You you keep it like in a mid shot within the box. Um, and then you have your your color palette. For much of the film, we have that yellowy green wash. And then when we get outside, yeah. we've got the green trees, so we keep that whole yeah. green vibe going. But I'm curious how you developed the, the, you know, the visual look that you wanted with this one in terms of keeping us in that buddy, that, the buddy comedy idea, the, the friendship idea, because you judiciously use wide shots. You don't have that many, and you keep yeah. everything more intimate which really helps us connect with the characters. Yeah, yeah. The, um, well, the, the, the def- I mean, I'm a big proponent of the color theory, and, and the yellow in Sid's walls was important. You know, the, the yellow is the, cow- the color of hope and cowardice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wanted to, to surround him in this kind of golden yellow tone, and what we did was we tea-stained newspapers and put newspapers on the wall, on the windows. And because there was no there's no open window in his place apart from the kitchen, and then we just painted the walls with like a tobacco stain, mm-hmm. and that and, and to be honest, that was inspired from the end of Apocalypse Now, the scenes with Brando, because they're all tobacco stained golden, and because I wanted to create a visual intensity where the color was symbolic, but I didn't want it to be this dark grit. I mean, because right. I could have gone real dystopian, because the story's dystopian, and I could have taken the color palette that way. But I didn't want to because this is a film about hope and love. But it's shrouded in doubt, and, and he's kind of a coward because it, it's stunted growth. So the color symbolizes that. And then when we go outside, the verdant aspect of L.A. with the green and trees is something I wanted to show because it's such a stone concrete, you know, yes. <laughs> stucco city. So yeah. I wanted to show a little bit of that. Um, but we didn't really get to go outside that much. No. But, um, unfortunately, his, his house is surrounded by trees. And there was a tree in the backyard, which which just helped all of that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what I notice oh, yeah. is in the box, um, yeah. color is gone in the box. And we just get, we really just have black and gray. So it's that moment of indecisiveness. It's like, it's the make or break moment, metaphorically. Yeah. And yeah. I really appreciated that because it's like, okay, we're in it. And then all of a sudden, we've got a live feed that ends. And yeah. what is happening? And it is—it's yeah. well, darkness. Your mind is reeling as a as a viewer. If you're Sid, 
and then you take us into a fantasy element which I yeah. really like, and I like because here you punctuate with color again and give us, but give us more of that dystopian tone. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, and the the, green, the symbolism of the green runs through the film because yeah. of the color of marijuana, you know, whatever, and you know, and at the end of it, I don't want to give away the ascension sequence, but you know, something happens with his laptop and the color green that all kind of ties everything together, and that's really, in a way, you could look at that sequence in the film. As um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of symbology in the film with very uh, much. the ascension with the burial there's the water which is kind of a baptism like there's mm-hmm. a lot in, and I'm and I'm kind of agnostic I'm not a religious person but I wanted to put really heavy mythological subtext into the film so that you could take away more than just the surface of a love story you know there's a lot going on there and that's all in there but it's 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 layered under a stoner uh, under the surface. And I'm glad you picked up on it because, you know, in a way, you remember the end of what was the movie in uh, New York with the with the God, what was it called? With the it was um anyway, it had that that strange ending to it where it kind of flies out the window. Like I wanted to leave this movie where you were kind of unsure after that sequence in the box. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to, to to add it in there to kind of leave a possibility of um. Of, you know how the film could end. Okay, my heart stopped. I want you to know that I was like, my mouth dropped and my heart stopped, and I'm like, oh my god. Yeah. I I just. Many, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good because that's it's meant to kind of do that, where you're laughing and having fun, and then suddenly you're faced with this critical moment, and then you don't know where it goes from there. So everything after that moment, is it a dream? Is it real? You know. What was the movie with the two actors? It was set in New York. It had, um, oh, my goodness. It was a one of the Oscar. Anyway, my brain is fried. My brain, yeah, my brain hasn't kick started yet for 2022. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's something interesting, too, is the, um, in the film, you know, Sid never smiles in the movie. You know, and, and only at one point, which I won't give away. Yes. And that was kind of. Devil Wears Prada, Meryl Streep. You know, mm-hmm. That film was so brilliant to me. And her character just shrouded in a doubt and sadness, you know, the whole time. And, you know, and then then right at the end of the film, you know, when she's in the car, she smiles. I remember just crying like a baby at that moment. Yeah, cause it was so why. unexpected. Yeah, it was unexpected. And so I kind of, uh, that, that there's an homage to that in our film. And, and that, in a way, is meant to elevate the whole climax. Mm-hmm. And it also takes it, with what happens at the very end, I won't give away in the credits. No, we're not going to give it, it away, but it's it's fabulous. Yeah, it takes it, it takes it into the fantasy realm, and that's yeah. important too. This is a film; it's not a documentary. It, it it kind of deals with that reality of fantasy and imagination, and you know, to me, good movies do that. Absolutely. Well, you know, the last element of this film that really plays a big part here is the score, is the music, your needle drops, and score. Um, you know, and music, obviously, with all the music videos you've done, you have a great sensibility and intuitiveness about music. What were you looking for musically to buttress this story? Well, you know, um, oh, the movie I'm talking about is Birdman. Aha, uh-huh, yes, Michael goes, Keaton. At the end, you're like, is it a dream? Is he dead? That was the, that was the ending that was left everyone guessing. That was kind of, in a way, what we, what we were shadowing. But um, 
Sorry, what was your last question? My brain about <laughs> see, our brains aren't working. It's too early in the year yet. Um, uh, no, uh, about the music. What were you looking? You've got Misha Siegel as your composer, tying yep. score in with all of your needle drops. So I'm curious what you were looking for musically to buttress this story, because of all the amalgamation you have. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. In the very beginning, I thought it was going to be like a John Carpenter style score. That's what I wanted. To match the dystopian thing, I was like, it has to be heavy and dark and electronic. And then when we were, you know, because there's three films, the one you write, the one you shoot, and the one you end up with. And when we were shooting it, I was realizing, oh, wait, this is different. This is a lot lighter. There's a lot more positivity in the film than I thought. So we shifted. And Misha is just such an expert. You know, he's just been doing it so long, and he has such an amazing sensibility towards composition and arrangement that I just said, you know, give me some samples of what you think. And literally the first thing he did, he nailed it. And it wow. was like, okay, just run with it. And um, I thought I was going to have to be tremendously involved, but, you know, he just, he understood it. He understood the kind of shift and, and, and how it, it had to ramp up. And I also said, look, I want one theme that runs through this film. Bum, bum, bum. There's like three notes, and they repeat as a motif all the way mm-hmm. through the film, from the beginning to the end. And I wanted that too, because, you know, great films like Traffic and the score on Traffic was so amazing to me. I remember just having that hook in my <laughs> in my head forever. And and the needle drops, uh, that's mostly that music is my son's. That's mostly my son's music. Wow! Um, yeah. So that was just to get him in there and, and to kind of initially it was all cover versions. We had like, you know, Cypress Hill. We had all the lead songs that we could get in there. And then we we realized, you know, it should be a, you know, more of our own vision and our own sound. So that that's what we ended up doing. Uh, I think I, you know, I think musically, I think it's perfect. I think the songs are perfect for the ever changing, you know, emotional beats here of the love, the luck, right. the loneliness, the stupidity. Um, you know, you've got songs that address some stupidity and naivete too. Uh, so. Absolutely, and that's a big. But that's a big part of the film, like stunted growth. You know, they both have it. You know, they're all yep. in the, when we do it. And you know, another part of this film, I think, was, which we haven't hit on, is is the role reversal, because that's what this is with Tina. You know, yes. the way Sid is the dance, and that was important. You know, I was raised by a, a woman, a, no, no pop, growing up. So that feminine aspect of masculinity is something that's in all of my scripts, and it's in there in this. And and I wanted, he, even though Tina's in the film not not she's not in it all the way but she is a heroic character very much so saves the day very much so and even also logan's mother diane there's a heroism to her in how she puts her foot down you know with in in the one scene in the kitchen and she's like oh no you're not you go right back there you take that back you aren't holding on to that um yeah it's and and it's not like and it's not like um, Logan is stealing the ticket. No, that scene shows us how young Logan is. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing he says he's eighteen, nineteen. He he could be fifteen. Yeah. And, and to me, that's the point of that scene. It's like, mom, mommy, mommy. It's like it yeah. shows that he's <laughs> immature little kid. But also, when Sid shows up at her house, she doesn't judge him. No. She do, she looks at him like, oh yeah, what do you do? And he says, oh, I'm a small commodity, you know, which means he's dealing in marijuana. And she, she kind of gets it, and there's no judgment. And I wanted that. I wanted a, a film with the characters that aren't automatically, you know, typecast and, 
you know, they're a little different and a little odd. And it's interesting because in the film, he says to Logan later, and he goes, your mom likes me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love like, that. Logan's like, easy, easy. And of course, and the way Coy plays that scene, the look on his, that he gives, you know, on his face, yeah. it's like mortification. You know, it yeah. it's kind of like a Brady Bunch kind of moment, you know, when it came out that Barry Williams went on a date with Florence Henderson. Every It's like, oh, yeah. So, yeah, very much that. Oh, my God. Paul, this is, I Challenger is such a fun movie. It is, wow. it is lighthearted. It is upbeat. It is a great film to start the new year with. Um, and it is, it's got a little something, a little something for everyone. We've got, there are high stakes at one point, but you never lose sight of these characters and you really love these characters and you want to see the best for them. Just so well done. I really, I'm Thank a big so fan of this film and tomorrow everybody can see it on VOD and digital. Debbie, thank you so much for your positive energy and feedback. This means the world because you know, it's always a crap shoot making a film. You never know if people are going to get it or, or connect with it. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for making it, Paul. Now, do you have any other uh, films in the works right now? Or are you just going to ride yeah, out this another, one? Yeah. Oh, no, we have another film coming out um, by Cynodi- from Cynodyne in the summer, which is called We Are Gathered Here Today, which is deals with COVID, actually. It's a, it's a drama, and it's about a family on a Zoom call experiencing the death of the patriarch, and it's full of stars. Like, it's an amazing cast, and... We did it over three days last August, and um, wow. it's completely different. It's in the style of a Zoom call. It's very, very unique, and that you know, so that will be coming out. And I'm shooting a film in the spring, so we're just keeping going. Well, I can't wait for that one, and I hope you'll come back on the show. Oh, absolutely, Deb. Thank you so much. Oh, for the time. Paul, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Paul Boyd, I Challenger. We are all out of time today, of course. And, oh, Pam left and Big Boss Nick is sitting in the booth and he's supposed to figure out how to bring up the, the outro music. Do you even know where it is, Nick? No, he doesn't know where it is. Maybe he does. No, I don't think he does. So you may hear outro music. You may not. But I am so... Okay, he's pushing buttons there, and God only knows what Nick is doing. Um, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's, like, replaying part of the show already. Heaven help us. All right, so we may not have outro music today. So tune in next week, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, AdrenalineRadio.com, AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. In the meantime, this week, this show will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net and all of your favorite podcast outlets out there. And uh, next week we'll be asking about who is Amos Otis. So until then, thank you for joining us to kick off year eight. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. 